If staying here means working within 10 yards of you, frankly, I'd rather have a job wiping Saddam Hussein's arse. Listeners, welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of Takes of Our Lives. You find yourselves in the midst of the Season 2 Bridget Jones franchise super arc. Today, we'll be talking about the first film. Steve, how are you doing? I'm great, man. I'm really excited to get back into it. Oi, Bridge. Oi, Bridge. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Oi, I'm so pleased. We we got a few of them, a few of them peppered in throughout the movie. No one said it directly though. I rem- I mean she said she alerts the crowd by saying "oi," which I absolutely loved. But I don't know. I don't do. I don't remember like a a direct. I have quote one that I bridge. picked out. Uh, but I think you know, in in the interest of fairness to our listeners, which I always strive for, it was kind of like an "a hey, bridge," and oh. that's, it's at the smug the smug marrieds dinner party, which. We'll get into, I'm sure. Uh, But before we do that, Steve, our average listener will probably be at least vaguely familiar. I would say uh, they have an odds-on chance of having seen the film. But could you, in case they haven't or in case they forgot, give us a brief summary of what happens in Bridget Jones' diary, the major motion picture? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the events from the book don't, you know, differ greatly. But yeah, I'll, I'll make it short and sweet. So... Bridget Jones' Diary, released in 2001, directed by Sharon McGuire, uh, chronicles a year in the life of Bridget Jones, a 32-year-old Londoner who is single, played by Renee Zellweger, a then 32-year-old Texan who was in a relationship with Jim Carrey at the time. (laughs) Wow, there's a lot packed (laughs) into that sentence just in and of itself. Time capsule. Yeah, totally. And the Zellweger casting was somewhat controversial. Uh, should we spend some time talking about her? Or how do you want to start this thing? I have a few things right off the bat just to sort of frame our conversation. Zellweger, as you mentioned, Texan, not very well liked given that the book had such a prominent role in British pop culture for the previous five years. Mm. However, she kind of nailed it. In the end, uh, I think she she kind of warmed her critics up and is kind of well regarded as a great casting choice uh she did gain 20 pounds for the role she was age appropriate and uh she worked for six months at a publishing house undercover where she remained unrecognized as like uh some method acting and this is just a lot this is some daniel day lewis shit for a for a rom-com and you know not to tip my hand too much, but you can kind of tell. She really she really does bring it, and she really is charming. Yeah, sinks into the role. Um, thank you for the uh, yeah the film facts. Uh, I, I don't know. Do you have more? I, there was a few others that I came across. That... Yeah, very briefly. Directed by Sharon McGuire, as you mentioned. Interesting. Sharon McGuire uh, did not actually have that many credits to her name when I looked her up. Bridget Jones 1, Bridget Jones 3, and a couple other projects... What I did learn, though, she's close friends of the original author, Helen Fielding, who also adapted the screenplay. So close of friends, actually, that the character Shazer 
in the book and the movie based on Sharon Maguire, the director. Oh, yeah. I saw that as well. I wonder, because, yeah, I was looking at her IMDb to see if there was anything else that I recognized. Maguire, I mean. And, uh, yeah, it was just mostly Bridget Jones-related media that, um, you know, I noticed. But directing aside, I mean, the I, I was wondering if maybe it was, she probably had an upper hand because she was friends with Helen Fielding, but I mean, she didn't like shit the bed by any means like the, no, no, the, the movies <laughs> remain unsoiled. I, I think, <laughs> I think our conversation will bear out that we, a generally favorable view of, of all the events that occurred. Uh, but yeah, I think f- final framing context, um, it, it's pretty well beloved. It's well, really well reviewed grossed almost 300 million dollars worldwide when all was said and done that's Got pretty wild sell. that's a that's a big big number for it's, a rom-com like this it, i guess it, it was is. in the early 2000s it was kind of a different time um in movie going but our gal zadweger got a best actress academy award nomination for i know i saw that too i was i only surprised because you normally don't see best actress nominations go to a comedic performance i think that's on the rarer side. Um, so that was interesting. But yeah, I mean, she, like you said, I mean, I think she really nailed it. A uh, little tidbit I saw there, Sight and Sound, it's a British film magazine. They were, were largely very positive about the accent. That was one thing that I was kind of like looking for on my rewatch was like, I wonder how consistent this accent is or, you know, if it's, you know, shaky at any point. Um, but no, I thought it was, I mean, I'm, I'm no, you know, connoisseur of uh you're you not know, a linguist the, Steve, the british man. tongue no <laughs> dictologist <laughs> but, but uh yeah I, I i had the same thoughts uh good enough I for sight knew, and sound good enough for me i kind of knew going into it that because uh, this is actually my my fourth rewatch of the film you know i still still enjoyed it just as much uh with with added nuances because of the show but i've always remembered the meta conversation about it being how formidable her accent is that she she sort of held character and didn't stop speaking in her British accent. This is actually my lovely partner, Sarah, of episode 13 of last season's fame, to tip me up to this trivia that Hugh Grant only heard Zalweger's real voice at the rap party and was sort of like horrified by it. <laughs> I saw that too, yeah, that he like didn't realize that she was American, which... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's those credentials Highest are pretty praise. good. Yeah, really. I also came across same dialect coach uh, Zellweger had as Gwyneth Paltrow in Shakespeare in Love. Another Incredible. late '90s, yeah, little. But yeah, there's. I don't know. I was kind of surprised at the amount of uh, you know tidbits and research there is online about this movie. But you know, it is pretty widely beloved, so it's. I suppose it's not that surprising. Yeah, I guess that's where I was going to say it's. Um it's got a spot in the zeitgeist and it's enduring. And uh, I think maybe we should like frame this because had, had you seen this before? Or is this your first watch of, of the original? Well, I mean, it's it all started back in Seattle for us. I'm sure you remember. Oh, I remember like it was yesterday, Steve. <laughs> Are you asking biz, if I watched it? That's what I call a toss over. But yeah, yeah. Um, we've both seen it. And it's not only that, but it's, it's an important part of our shared film history. Absolutely. Uh, might have, is it possible it's the first movie we ever watched together? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible. I would have to go to the deep archives, the part that has been rotted away by stress and alcohol, to, <laughs> to understand. <laughs> Memory doesn't go back to it. 2014 very easily. So, uh, <laughs> But yeah, no. Okay, so I will set it up a little bit. I mean, 
first watch was under very ideal circumstances, you know, on vacation. I think it was after a night out, kind of a nightcap hang before a wedding weekend. So we were pretty primed to enjoy it or, you know, at least have a good time watching it. We could have watched C-SPAN rollbacks and we would have been (laughs) cheering nostalgically. For sure. The second viewing, my most recent viewing, a little different. It was like 7 p.m. Monday, solo on a laptop in a (laughs) pandemic. So the vibe was not quite the same, but um, still found it, you know, delightful. And uh, yeah, really excited to chop it up. Totally. Um, Now couple of things, maybe the final staging before we hop into it. It's a little bit different from the plot of the book, but I do mean a little bit. Much more of a true love triangle. Uh, if, you, if you'll remember from our previous conversation, in the book, she you know, is in love with Cleaver, things go wrong, turns to Darcy, and that's sort of how the, the, the arc goes. Here we've got a will-they-won't-they, they, a return, a resurgence, of course, a fight scene that has gone down in both fame and infamy, <laughs> and, uh, and a lot more of what I might call your prototypical formula for a romantic comedy, where the main subject is choosing between two men. Uh, they're both in it to the end, though, of course, they do take their turns in the spotlight. Uh, other than that, though, we've got your, it's another, you know, it's the same. It's the classic Pride and Prejudice on Redux, like uh, redone for the modern age. A lot less technologically tied in. I think it actually kind of has a timeless quality to it. Uh, yeah, that, all that landline anxiety from the book is pretty much like done away with in the movie. There's never, there's not a whole, there's that one moment where she answers the phone and has that thing about wanting sex goddess and is her mom on the end of the other end. But there isn't really like a lot of like phone mishaps or like phone, just general phone anxiety in the movie. No, I, I, I think that serves it well, actually, though. I really love that part of the book. It did kind of make it seem like a relic. I think, and this is maybe our, our first opportunity to double take. I think by and large, Bridget Jones diary one could be produced today and uh, it would it would get away fairly unscathed. So when you say that, do you mean unscathed by who and for what reason? Oh, it wouldn't feel dated. Like if they released it today, I see it what would you're saying. Feel pretty good. I I didn't really get that sort of stale aired feeling about it being you know firmly stuck in. The, obviously, not the '90s. This was produced in 2000 and then released in 2001. Uh, but it, it didn't really have that early 2000s feeling to me. I, th- I thought it actually held up pretty well. I So I will push back on that a little bit, but I think I'm going to save my explanation of my take for a later segment because it, it kind of ties in with uh, one of the segments that we're going to do. Should we talk about the segments we're going to do or are we just going to plow ahead? Uh, yeah, you know how much I love talking about what we're going to talk about. So <laughs> I think we should. I th- This time around, we're going to hit you with some takedown breakdown in just a little bit. Obviously, we're going to do our own scene. Then, this is what I'm excited for, soundtrack. That's going to get contentious, I can tell you that already. And, uh, uh, of course, our debuting for the second time uh, segment, Two Guys, a Girl, and a Turkey Curry Buffet. Excellent. Okay, so I'm sorry I, I derailed us a little bit there, but no, I do want to go back to the book versus movie thing. Um, I more or less agree with what you said. I think it does... the. The fact that it's, yeah, it isn't really like stuck in the 90s in any 
technological way. I think the one thing I noticed the, um, I mean, besides like the AOL instant messenger or MSN messenger, whatever that was that they were using, uh, like just the way the computers looked, you know, felt a little bit dated. Um, that's like not really important at all though. I feel like the pop culture media references were kind of old for the time anyway. Like I, you know, me, I flipped when I, the fatal attraction, uh, reference came up. <laughs> Followed like very quickly by the Frasier title card while she's watching TV. Oh my God, I know. Our extended universe is becoming very interesting, Steve. I was like, does this podcast itself reach some kind of singularity with those two moments? (laughs) And then um, what else was, oh yeah, like within like the first 10 minutes and then like Kafka gets brought up. That's not really something that you and I talk a lot about, but there are, there have been times in my life when I've like had like daydreamed about being an intellectual and Kafka is uh, pretty heavily involved there. Not entirely Kafka sure why. Kafka is the I... proverbial sugar plum dancing in your head. <laughs> so that is... got three strong Steve references in the first, I think it's like the first 10 minutes of uh, the movie. So excited on that front. But, you know, those references aren't like, oh, how 90s of it. Maybe Frasier, you could say, but... Um, well, yeah, but you bring up a good point. The, po- the political jabs and remarks... Uh, did definitely hit me in the fa- in the face with a, a middle school feeling. Mm, uh, Saddam as, the, the line that you used to open it, that, yeah, that was that was like a '90s thing for sure. Very '90s. Uh, we did get a little a little Balkans uh, mm. mixed in. We got a hilarious gag where the the interviewer asks Bridget Jones what she thinks about. El Nino, and she says, a total fad, Latin music is on its way out. Mm. And I, you know, that is an utter groaner, but it's also, <laughs> I, I, I laughed. So maybe it's just me being an ancient boomer. But uh, yeah, I, I think generally, though, it didn't feel old in the way it was filmed, um, with one exception. Let me, let me uh, hear what you think about this. Bridget Jones' friends in the movie were way weirder and difficult to comprehend than they were in the books in in the book definitely notice the tom is like a sort of a failed musician but not or just like tom is like a a, some, a musician of some note i thought that was like a weird flourish that they added but i don't know the other jude and shazer i didn't really find them to be like too much different than the book. I, giving Shazer like the predilection for using the F word I was the, was kind of a weird choice, but I don't know. What specifically are you talking about? Well, I just meant in the way that they were sort of acted or portrayed. They just seemed very manic. And yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the film has a frenetic pace that I think serves it well. And, you know, sort of that, that comes hand in hand with some energetic performances from, you know, the people who aren't in the in the limelight. But I thought, like, Jude was just kind of weird. Like, I when I, she was a pretty big part of the books, and, you know, her struggle uh, was very relatable. You know, she's in this semi-abusive relationship, and, you know, they, they use it as a critique for male behavior uh, at the time. I guess that still endures. But uh, in the movie, she's, like, this very weird, mousy character who's, like, Dude, wearing her, these suits that are way too big for her. It's like, she's kind of freaky. Her mousy baby voice that just turned out to be her actual voice, I found very odd. Um, yes, I agree. <laughs> but, it's very strange. Like, I think, so in the book, you know, like the 
her single friends are kind of like her haven, right? Or they're, they're like being single to some degree is looked at as like the exciting choice of life. Like if you're going to like look at, at it as a, you know, from a positive standpoint, like it, sure. it brings excitement. So I think like to, for those characters to kind of have the energy, like compared to maybe like the stale, you know, married couples or like her parents or, you know, her parents, friends and stuff like that, I think. That part made a little sense. Some of the actual like act like the Tom, that dude who plays Tom has just some like weird facial tics and like smiles and stuff like that. And then like the <laughs> moment when he like bursts into the restaurant to alert everyone that there's a fight. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves with takedown oh, breakdown. God. But I think I overall I, I don't totally disagree with you, but I think that it serves at least some purpose. Whether or not you know, I always hate when people are like, oh, well, you know, it's supposed to be like this. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's like effective or like well done. Um, so if it didn't work for you, it didn't work. But I didn't really find that to be an issue. But just like getting back to a book versus movie, just on some larger things, this is maybe just like servicey, but I pointed, I just wanted to point these out. I mean, mostly it preserves pretty much all the main story beats and the charm of the book. Obviously, they had to cut stuff out for time. You know, you couldn't have, you know, a, a movie that included all of just kind of like the more frivolous things like the Tom. We don't knows. need a four hour Bridget Jones. Diary. No, good Lord. No, but the Tom <laughs> knows job and like that scene, I think it was my O scene from the book, but where Daniel and her first get together and like, there's like the flood in the, the lower apartment and she has sex with that Australian guy. And you know, th- those there's like stuff that they cut out obviously just for time. But, um, I actually, I wanted to mention the mom plot actually makes a lot more sense, in my opinion, the way the movie does it. She does still make it to TV somehow, but it's not like they're just like, she's just handed like a, you know, interview job. Like she's just on a home shopping network with kind of like a blowhard guy. I couldn't agree more. I, I thought the the movie salvaged what was probably the weakest part of the book, in my opinion. The the mom part, the, the, the mom and dad saga, still a little cliche for my taste. Ending is a little trite. It's a rom-com. I, I'm not expecting the world, but still. But it was much simpler, made so much more sense, was so much easier to follow. Yeah. And instead of like a weird kind of icky racial stereotype with the, the Portuguese man named Julio, we get instead a surprisingly funny caricature of a daytime QVC chucklehead named julianne <laughs> who i i really enjoyed just how unlikable he was I, it was a great choice to adapt in that way totally really good adaptation and lord knows we did not need any more slandering of various races in the Bridget jones verse so that was <laughs> <laughs> certainly not great certainly choice not. by them but yeah and then you know obviously the ending is different because you know we're spared the julio you know thing where like Mark disappears and then saves Bridget's mother from jail in Portugal. Um, and then Thank like, God. <laughs> the biggest one probably though, the relationship Well, that that's like actually kind of affects the narrative is the relationship between Mark and Daniel, which I'm sure we'll chat more about, but yeah, I don't know. Otherwise than that, I mean, I haven't really read a novel and then watched a movie like this in this close a time period in a while. Like I thought it was a pretty faithful adaptation, all things considered. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I think it may make sense that the author uh, adapted the screenplay herself. So I, I think it would, you know, stand a reason that it's pretty faithful. How about more generally, Steve? Your rewatch reaction, obviously, time, place, attitude, all very different. 
Uh, but yes. were there some things that I, I know, even on a fourth watch, I had some things that kind of stuck out to me as, as interesting. And let me start with the, with the, the headline. Hit me. I know we have a, a reputation for being prudes on takes of our lives, <laughs> but we see a whole lot of Zellweger ass in this movie. Mm. It is raunchier and a little bit more scandalous than I remember. It definitely wasn't the sort of PG-13 happy for all family members to see at once romp that I had categorized it as in my mind. Now, I know that was sort of fallacious to begin with because part of its charm is that it was rough around the edges, a little bit raw. And, you know, that's part of its its narrative when it came out. But uh, I, I admit, I was a little surprised by how many times we got to see Zellweger's cheeks. <laughs> there is like more Zellweger ass than I was expecting. Uh, the, the thing that kind of took me aback was, yeah, like you mentioned, like how like lewd the movie is. There's like a certain moments and scenes where I was just like, my God, like the, the part, do you remember the part where they're having dinner and there's that line about like, she, one of the, one of the friends is like, oh, this is how you like introduce people at a party. So-and-so comes from this place. And then she's like, Dan and Daniel comes and like, Zellweger has that follow-up about like that really crass sex act. And then like there's that part. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't even want to say it. That's how much of a crude I am. <laughs> yeah. But I was just like, yeah, Jesus. Like, that, uh, and then like the part where she sees her mother at the department store and she's using that like strange egg shelling device and she's like, you know, doing the jerking motion and then like that shit sprays out of it at the end. Like she like, masturbates the <laughs> yeah. egg juicer to completion. It's this is like a Tom gross. green movie from, you know, the <laughs> late nineties. That's what I was. Yeah. That's kind of what I was driving at. It was, it was, um, I expected it to be, you know, flavored with a little bit of a rated R vibe, but it was just kind of crasser than I thought it would be. Definitely. And I, I mean, I, I'll be honest, like the, I have, Memories of like having an excellent time watching the movie the first time, but like actual scenes and like story beats and stuff like that, uh, I don't remember. I didn't remember much. Like for instance, the fight. Like I was convinced there was like a a fountain involved at some point in that fight, <laughs> and maybe that's just like a weird acid flashback from Edge of Reason. Uh, I'm not entirely oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> that's you. You've conflated the the final fight scenes in those movies. Um. So I that side note. I've never done a hallucinogens before, but I wonder if an acid flashback is anything like when I'm like calmly going about my day, and then a scene from Rachel getting married will just like assault <laughs> my consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> oh no but so yeah like that like the stuff like that though like i was just like oh you know i i didn't i thought i remembered something and that's not how it turned out at all but um i don't know overall like one thing i noticed like she so she's smoking constantly obviously that's a big part of the diary you know her like her habits and like various stages of trying to quit them or whatever there was a time in my life when I was living in Europe, uh, studying abroad, uh, smoking most of the day in like an apartment that looked close enough to Bridget's to ignite some nostalgia. So that that kind of hit me. Um, other things like I, we mentioned, like the pop culture references, like right away, especially Fatal Attraction. Loved it. Frasier, for sure. Um, I was mostly like paying attention to the performances because like as we were reading the book, even even reading the book, I was like, oh, man, I'm kind of anxious to see how this like comes alive on screen with these actors. And so that was the stuff that I was kind of mostly paying attention to. Yeah, I agree. I, I have a couple very brief uh, thoughts before we can 
leap into the segments proper, but uh, mostly I, I agree with you. One thing that stuck out to me, um, I don't I don't think the diary elements were handled with the most grace. We've got she she narrates some of it, which works well, works fine. But then we've got some things where like her diary entries like appear on billboards or they like they'll like be left behind in this sort of like pseudo fantastical crossover between what she's really seeing and what she's imagining. Now, I don't think that is like a bad approach in general, but they only, they sort of half go for it. It's only in like three or four scenes. Dude, you're totally right. This movie is guilty of something that I do notice occasionally. And it's like, yeah, it's like this flourish that they add, but they, they do it once or twice and never go to again. Specifically in this movie, it's near the very beginning that when she's talking to Daniel, I think for the first time, and she makes up that lie about like the professor she's talking to and then he catches her. And then like the word fuck is written like text on screen. You know what I mean? Like her reaction. Yeah. It's the only time that it happens in the entire movie. And you at first when you're watching, you're like, oh, is it is this going to be like a, you know, a bit or a gag that they like return to and it only happens once. And the same thing with the diary entries, there's a part at the very beginning where it's like alcohol units, cigarettes, whatever. And like the number, and then they just never go back to it. You, what you mentioned is true. Like it, it appears on billboards or whatever at certain points, but yeah, it's too infrequent and it kind of feels like they just, they had the idea and they went like not even halfway with it and they either yeah, gone they... all the way with it or not at all. Yeah, or at least go halfway with it. Just make it a real motif. They just it was truly just randomly sprinkled, uh, which is gave me Ally McVeal vibes, which is not <laughs> what you want. If you are of someone making media, just my humble advice is avoid Ally McBeal vibes at any cost. Have you spent some time watching McBeal? I've I've got a brief history of McBeal. I don't want to tip our hands for season twenty seven. Uh, <laughs> That's that's all I've got for rewatch reaction though. Only only a sort of period to put on it is I, I agree and we'll talk about it more. But the performances are all terrific from our main cast um, across the board. I couldn't be couldn't be more captivated. And I think that's my my working theory is that it took a flawed but pretty strong premise and made it into an enduring cultural icon. And I think that's pretty interesting in and of itself. I think Zellweger Grant specifically, uh, and I don't want to short shrift Firth, but th- those two, I think, le- leaped off my computer screen as I was watching it alone. <laughs> <laughs> I had Daniel Cleaver kicking back on my couch next to me. Um, all right, Steve, the masses have been clamoring for it. I've seen people outside my door. They've been waiting for me <laughs> till it's dark. They corner me and say, grabbing the scruff of my neck like a cartoon bring back takedown breakdown and i say to them yes okay fine (laughs) and so here we are takedown breakdown and boy howdy do we have a full plate steve if you remember from i don't know six months ago when we did our last takedown breakdown uh it's where we air our grievances we take down the things that didn't work and we break down the things that didn't make sense in a rom-com there are a lot of gags and sort of gags for gags sake. But even given that, plenty of room to work with in terms of things to T and B. I, I agree completely. How do you want to tackle this? I mean, is your do you have a long list or what's your I have a I have a modest list. I, okay. I tried to be self editing. There there were things I had to hit the cutting room floor even before we got in the booth. 
Uh, but let me uh, let me hit you with the one that we have already sort of mentioned, but it was just it's just too too much to bear. QVC presenter, sort of a, a floor show, sort of expo presenter. First of all, makes way more sense than being on an actual syndicated program where she's interviewing people. But what on earth is that egg machine? <laughs> you said it, it shelled the hard-boiled eggs. Is that what it's meant to do? It looks like a tiny bazooka, and she's jerking it off. I yeah I I was like pretty flummoxed by that and I think it's like pretty clear they only it's like just like a a device to get that like pretty cheap laugh where like the the stuff squirts out at the end or I guess to to have her jerking it off and then like the the excrement come out but yeah I was <laughs> like if you're gonna use a kitchen gadget like that I don't know <laughs> just come did they my question for you is did they invent this gadget. No, for that, the gag. that can't be. First of all, how how I can't even imagine. I don't want to spend any time even like, you know, trying to figure out how that would work. But and then why is there <laughs> liquid like why? You know, yeah. Where, what? Where, where does, the, does liquid... the white liquid come from? It's Very egg strange. water. But eggs don't really have water. No, I want to commend them for like figuring out like a clever way to, you know, get her mom on TV. If you're like, let's figure out. Let's actually like brainstorm and think about how would her mom actually end up on television that's probably like you know maybe the most plausible way um but yeah. to to start off with that ridiculous like kitchen contraption was that that raised my eyebrow that's where i wanted to start now it's much more open i mean there's an elephant in the room steve in terms of takedown breakdown i think we leave i i'm if, if we're on the same page uh i think we leave that till the end the big one the, the Lebowski. Yeah, let's let's uh, <laughs> let's save that. I, I'm going to couch this next one then because, you know, we've got a whole segment of soundtrack coming up. But I uh, I have some some choice words, some bones that need picking about the soundtrack in this film. And uh, none worse, in my opinion, than the disastrous montage uh, that's present in many rom-coms, the getting it together montage where mm. uh, she she's just been cheated on. Actually, she learned that she's been cheating with Daniel on Daniel's American fiance. And, uh, you know, she tries to get it together and go to the gym, spruce up her look, get healthy, get organized. While, um, do you remember what's playing while uh, this is going on? I Is it, is that, that's not the... Aretha Franklin respect part, is it? No, that is at a different egregious moment. This is, if my memory serves my notes are right, this is I'm Every Woman. Oh, yeah, right. While this is going on. And the just having Tom. her alone in the tiny gym where the lights are off on that was the so exercise weird. bike. Yeah, why is she by herself on like the, the treadmill? Or It's not the treadmill, but yeah, the exercise bike. That doesn't make any sense. They couldn't afford extras. Was this late in the game reshoot that they had to do? I don't. And then like the the dumb like Pratt fall where she like fall you know trips when she gets off the machine. Uh, Zaguerra has some good physical comedy in this film. I think some really good physical comedy. Even that she just literally like l- throws herself onto the ground like the opening act of a WWE Wednesday night performance. It was. It is cheap. just. It's horrible. Just a couple of my like, I think we, we touched on a few of my smaller ones, but like Tom is a semi-famous musician. Like, what, what do you think about that? Why do you think they added that? 
how how cynical do you want my answer to be? Uh, <laughs> I I would hope it's not more even more flagrantly tokenizing the gay character. Uh, I mm. I fear that it might be. I don't know. I think the movie makes a lot of decisions where it's like, wouldn't it be funny if? And then they seem to laugh to each other, but it doesn't make like a whole hell of a lot of sense. Uh, I guess to it make that plot. character like somewhat more interesting, but I don't know. I just thought it was really unnecessary, and but ultimately not like too distracting and pretty inoffensive, but confusing. Uh, <laughs> the perfect takedown. <laughs> I want another small one, but that like very strange, like totally needless scene where she forces her dad to let her drive. And then, like, it's, <laughs> do you remember oh, that? Oh, God, yeah. We, it, it ignited uh, the most outrage that Sarah, my partner, produced at the film was, was that scene. In theory, they went through it to give us the hilarious and scare quotes picture of Bridget Jones' father gripping the roof of the car because he was terrified of, of Bridget's, you know, driving mania. Right, and if that's how many hoops they were going to jump through to get us a little bit of the oogity boogity look from from an old man, then I got a question. <laughs> I got a question. What they were going for? Um. Okay. So, can we talk about Daniel's condo for a minute? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I would like that very much, Steve. So at first, when she shows up, I'm like, okay, why is he? working at like the oxford library like, did you see the <laughs> collection of leather bound tomes in that dude's house oh like, is my he a God. billionaire like what is going on he for in in the near suburbs of london so in in fairly metro london he lives in a mansion it is that was, that was the other thing it's like he's a publishing executive which i know in the 90s was like a posh job but but it was posh it was like architect tier posh it was posh right. Low six figs, modest. He's not an investment banker, okay? He's not a movie star. He, I, I, I don't know why his condo has like four floors, gigantic glass ceilings, and like you said, the Library of Alexandria just fucking tucked in to the reading nook. If that was Hugh, if you told me Hugh, that was Hugh Grant's actual condo, I'd be like, hmm, okay, I guess. Like, I didn't realize he was that rich. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it was egregious. It was it, it overdressed, to be sure. But it was one of the dopest movie like apartment condos I've seen oh, in a while. I want to live there. And the fire pole gag didn't really get me in the book, and it's not. It's like it's not funny on the page, and it's not especially funny in the movie. None of it makes sense to me. Why is the cameraman directly under her? And why did they give her like fifteen seconds? Why did they think that was enough time to slide down and like do an interview? Like that, that whole thing, I just never worked for me. The blocking and tackling of it, just, uh, you're right. It was never thought out well enough to, to make sense. I, I want to piggyback off that and say the gag where she misses the interview with the, you know, the, the famous trial that's going on. The, the trials are different from the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the book, it's really, it's actually really funny because you get, you get the pride cometh before the fall type moment where you the reader can tell that Bridget is going to fuck this up long before Bridget knows that she's going to fuck it up. Right. And then she like goes for candy and misses it. Very funny. Happened way too rapidly this time around. I was genuine, even someone who had seen the movie before and read that thing happening in the books, I was like confused what was going on. 
Why is Darcy here? Why is he wearing a wig? Why are they at a gas station? <laughs> the scene's already over. Oh, now we're in a we're in a poorly lit library and we're doing an interview. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that because I knew from the book like what was happening. But yeah, like why why not take out that stupid shit with the dad and driving and like yeah, just extend that scene just a little bit just to make the beats make sense. Because you're right. Like in the one of the. the the reason it works in the book is because you see it coming from a mile away. She's going to like actually go get cigarettes and like, you know, all this other shit. And and you're like, Oh, this isn't going to end well for old bridge. And of course it doesn't, (laughs) but then it does. Then Darcy saves the day. But yeah, none of that is related in the movie because it all just happens way too quickly. And yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I think it's time, Steve. Hold on. I got a couple more quick flybys. I don't want to, I don't want to drag this out too long, but I just, these aren't even takedowns just as much as like things that made me laugh that I couldn't find another place to mention. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, but yeah, like the smug asshole at the couple's dinner where he's like, that was, how's your love life? Like that was just like such a weird, like line delivery. So, you know what it reminded me of? We watched that George Lazenby documentary Mm. recently and they had like the actor playing George Lazenby in his own flashbacks. I was like, but and and in that they sort of like purposely cast a guy who's a bit of like a smug dope to like underscore their whole treatise on Lazenby. But he, it was like they played it straight. It was very confounding. Also, side note, I wanted to bring this up in the uh, book versus movie thing. But is so I noticed that they. It, it felt like they were trying to like shoehorn Darcy in scenes that he wasn't in in the book, like the Tarts and Vickers party and like the when they go on the mini break and then like that, you know, the dinner with the smug marrieds or whatever. Is he in all those scenes in the book? No, no, okay. he's not. That's very astute, Steve. I think, um, you know, I can guess at the theory. They they supposedly triple build these these stars and they want them together on screen as much as possible but particularly egregious when they're both in the in the canoes yeah that the, that i knew definitely pond. didn't happen but I, I was like am i like crazy or i does do they does natasha and darcy show up at that same place that they're staying or is that just totally just no, added for the movie if if my memory serves it's completely fabricated in the film we're gonna look like idiots if both of us are wrong <laughs> but yeah get, I, <laughs> our one fan is gonna be so fucking pissed so that, I mean, it makes sense because, yeah, if you, because otherwise the way that it actually plays out in the book where they barely, they like kind of know each other, Darcy and Daniel, but, you know, they they don't have like that backstory and yeah, and they're, it's very separated between Darcy and Daniel. It makes much more sense if you're cutting it into like an hour and 40 minute movie that like he keeps showing up and that's part of the reason why she ends up falling for him. But yeah, totally. <clears throat> didn't really have a problem with that, but it was just wanted to make sure that I wasn't you know, like going crazy. Um, but I like the part where Julian uh, breaks bad and when her mom's on the phone and she's like, I think that he might be kind of a shit. And then it cuts to him and he's like berating that woman who's cutting his fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that was gold. I mean, they did a really good job with this character. Just a lot of quick one-off scenes that were genuinely pleasing. That was maybe like the best, like, movie adaptation was actually i don't know like i i really really fell pretty hard for grant in this movie but um i don't know changing julio to julian uh was just really smart um and then i loved that part in the tarts and vickers party where una flames that lady in the pink dress she's like oh don't worry (laughs) we forgot to tell her as well and she's like no you didn't 
<laughs> yeah, that it's sort of it, you could see it was like a telegraphed punch, but man, it it landed. It was it was. There was some really good shit in that because I really liked the way that scene ends too, where he's just like, "Oh, it looks like Auntie whoever like didn't get the message either," and she's like an old woman and like you know like a and prostitute, was, yeah, <laughs> creeping into the bushes. Just it, yeah, they really captured like this. The movie was so frenetic; it was a gag a minute. And, like, they really, like, composed some really tight scenes where that Tarts and Vickers party's only on screen for, like, what, four to six minutes. But there are a lot of funny moments. Good sight gags when the dad's, like, at least I didn't spend as much as whoever any points. And the dude's dressed like the Pope. That's <laughs> just <for laughs> yeah. two seconds. But I like that. And then my last one, um, the sideburns flame was just savage. I'm not sure if I could have rebounded <laughs> from that. When she <laughs> just talking to him about how much he likes him for him, but and then just like hits him with the brutal honesty of the sideburns could be shortened. I feel just like tragic. I feel like the that was like one of the one of the couple moments where the jab really reached through the character to hit Firth. Right? <laughs> yeah, Firth is cage. like, what did I do? <laughs> yeah, because he he doesn't get hit with that in the book either. That is a Firth original burn. Totally. Okay, I think it's time. Let's do it. Um, not present in the book, as we've mentioned, is the five-minute-long fight scene caper that has rightfully gone down in history as one of the more strange, hilarious, interesting, confounding, confusing uh, decisions in romantic comedy history. I don't think it's overstating it to say that. I just want your thoughts, Steve. Overall, the idea is not bad. Two, you got two like kind of posh British men flailing in the street. Has some funny elements. Um, I really like Grant's response when he first gets hit. He's like, "Oh fuck me, that hurt." It has like a very similar like Fight Club element. You know, when Norton first hits Pitt for the first time, and I think he gets him in the ear, and it's like two dudes who like clearly have never fought before, like have no idea what they're doing. Yes, yes, I agree. So that that is just on on its face. That is not a bad idea. Tom busting into a restaurant full of people shouting fight. That's where you lose me. That's where it like veers into slap like gets a little too slapsticky. And honestly, like this movie kind of toes the line with the slapstick stuff. And that scene is and I think the big thing that that I would have taken out for sure or changed is the song that plays over that because that's what like just. Steve, for our listeners, what are we listening to while the fight breaks out? It's um, it's Rain and Men by the Weather oh. Girls, oh. and it is a bridge too far. TM, <laughs> rights reserved. Takes of our lives, 2020. Uh, that it is, Steve. It, it's, the, it's the perfect example of a bridge too far. Like you said, they actually had a lot of things going for it. The very beginning of the fight is great. It is, it's like you said, it's very ineffectual. It is subverting this trope where... In these rom-coms, you know, things escalate and the two knights vie for the hand of the maiden at the end uh, through some sort of physical contest. Doesn't usually actually manifest as a fight, but there's some sort of like thing to remind the viewer that they're men. But it's it's turned on its ass here because they're they're fighting like weirdos falling on each other, slapping strange headlocks. It's very amusing. And then what I think they were going for. This is, again, some interpretation, some prognostication. But I felt like they wanted to keep 
keep turning it on its head. Like they, I, I thought they were trying to make it ironic in how over the top it was, mm. but they just the formula got all fucked up halfway through, and there were haymakers and people being thrown across dining room tables, carafes crashing to the ground pausing uh, to sing happy birthday which like kind of was funny but and then like the music starts right back in and like they get thrown through the plate glass or they throw each other i guess through the plate glass window i think it went off the rails it's safe to say oh absolutely and just like <laughs> <laughs> okay so like i love how like you were like almost offended that i i wasn't strong enough in my in my condemnation if a top barrister knocked out a man in the street with like a hundred witnesses, would he be disbarred and jailed? Like what? What he just like <laughs> calmly like throws his jacket over his shoulder and walks away? And he like acts like he's the good guy. He almost fucking killed Daniel Cleaver. Start <laughs> the fight first of all. Daniel right. is like die- is dying. The man's been thrown through a a pane of glass. He's like lying in the street bleeding, and he just sort of like he says, "Well, I'm." I'm happy you've made your choice and bridge or whatever. He says some sort of smug, like like acting like he has the moral high ground after he, he very well could have committed murder. It, you know, it, it, it goes over the line for me in this movie, but the real sin is what happens in Edge of Reason, where they just took all the wrong lessons from <laughs> Bridget Jones's diary. <laughs> We're going to need a, a, an extra episode between <laughs> two and three to just take down, break down that film. But just to tie that up, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on it, but yeah, like that, my thing is just like, not a terrible idea, executed poorly, and then like executed, almost can't come back from it in uh, Edge of Reason. And then just straight up executed, just shot in the head in the street mm. at the end. Very, but you know what? It gets the people talking. As they would say in Bridget Jones' second job of the film, you know, all, all news is good news. It did make the movie memorable. I mean, it, it remained re- memorable for its own reasons, but, you know, that is probably the scene, if I had to guess, that um, probably sticks with people more than anything. Keeps it, keeps it alive in the zeitgeist all these years later. Yeah, I, I guess... I don't know how I'd gauge that take, but I don't disagree with it wholeheartedly. That's as good as I could hope for <laughs> with something as speculative as that. Uh, speaking of scenes, though, Steve, I want to talk about one that is particularly memorable or ostentatious or unforgettable to you in our segment that we call The O Scene. Steve, what scene made you say O? Oh? So I went with the mini break scene. She doesn't spend too much time like fantasizing about mini breaks the way she does in the book. Uh, but much to my chagrin, for yeah, me. she just the, the <laughs> words mini break don't get uttered like literally over a dozen times in like a span of you know what would be like five minutes of screen time. But alas, so yeah, just to break this down a little bit, great scarf, unbelievable car. I just I really like that like that moment. There's a kind of a weird camera shot of like that goes above the car when she like comes out. Grant does the growl when he's revving the engine. Um, oh yeah, d- hell yeah! And then <laughs> we just get the <laughs> the very ominous foreshadowing line like this can't just be shagging. A mini break means true love, dude. Um, it's so good. We get the hair sight gag when they when she first shows up and they're at like the receptionist desk and it like cuts over to her because she's lost her scarf and her hair is all windblown. Um, which I enjoyed, but 
the when they're on the boats, Grant like reciting that lewd poem gets a little slapsticky when he falls in like the shallow lake. Uh, could be pouring it on a little bit heavy there, but I don't know. It's it's played soft enough that I, and it's just like so damn charming. Grant in that scene, it's he's like it's a pretty stark contrast from how it goes in the book. You know, in the book, it's like pretty much raining the entire time, and it just ends with him watching cricket and drinking like always. But yeah, so it just makes that the discovery of him cheating on her hit a lot harder because like that that scene is played completely different in the movie. That everything they're in this like pristine location and you know just having the times of their life or the time of their life. I really liked Cleaver's character in the book, but I, I like Cleaver a whole hell of a lot more even on the screen here. Uh, thanks in no small part to Hugh Grant's, um, you know, sort of seminal performance uh, in the genre. But I, uh, I agree. I thought it was really tender even, like in the, in the pond uh, mm-hmm. where he was like splashing around, making an ass of himself. And uh, I, I think the, the book Cleaver would be a little bit too up his own ass to, to do something like that. But uh, movie Cleaver, uh, you know, that's true confidence. Being able to laugh at yourself, make yourself the butt of the joke, and um, and then and maintain a sort of sex appeal and charm throughout that. Uh, so I, it, it was it was a real, you know, when we go to the tail of the tape in the turkey curry segment later, mm. uh, it's going to be high marks for him in that moment, I, and I think a great O scene. Absolutely. What about you? I'm going to take a little bit of an avant-garde approach to give myself praise before I even uh, share my scene with you, Steve. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'll allow I, it. <laughs> mine comes really early on, and it's it's. I could see a reasonable person saying the scene is terrible. I hated it, uh, but I really liked it. She is. It, it, we're we're pretty early on, maybe 20 minutes into the movie, and she is selected to give the introduction to her boss mm. at the premiere, the publishing premiere of Kafka's Motorbike. Very cheeky name for a, a novel. Sort of like makes no sense, but makes a lot of sense at the same time. She like goes on the most dry, rambling, strange journey of introduction that uh, I've ever experienced personally. And... They don't really like mercifully cut it short. No, it's they early us... cringe comedy, man. Yeah, it, exactly, exactly. Ahead we of their are time. treated to two and a half minutes of just unfiltered, uncut rambling rawness, and we're it's reprised at the um, at the Ruby wedding mm-hmm. later in the movie. She sort of does a callback to her own uh, classic style of. Uh, rambling sort of in a, in a lost sheepish way. This was something that wasn't in the book, wasn't a quality of Bridget Jones's in the novel, but I think Zellweger really, really sells it. And it's maybe a cheap trick in terms of infusing her with some personality, but I think it's a very sort of relatable flaw. I have found myself many, many times in my personal and professional life talking, even though I was out of things to say. And I just couldn't stop myself. I was rolling downhill, and uh, I I definitely saw myself in her in her shoes in in that scene. So I had to pick it. Absolutely, I totally agree. I think those are, in my opinion, Zell Wigger's best moments. 
that and like the part when like you mentioned the ruby wedding but where she just like gets up there and she's just like a balloon like slowly deflating and like <laughs> by the end it's just like yes. kind of like wanders away from the mic um yes. but yeah those i i agree i really really like that scene i like the ruby wedding one a lot too and she plays him perfectly and yeah it, it is it's straight up early cringe comedy um and yeah totally I, sets I, the stage for how the humor is going to be in the rest of the of the film which is I, I want to say not to sound too high-minded, but you know, re, there's there's a lot of like cliche humor that goes on, but there's a lot of like interesting, weird, strange humor that they sprinkle in. And I think that's where a lot a lot of the charm comes from. This is a good example of that. Definitely, Steve. Uh, I'm nervous. I've got palpitations. <laughs> I'm a little. I'm a little afraid because you know this. I, I could see this conversation going one of two ways. The conversation we're about to have, listeners. Is about Soundtracked. Soundtracked is our investigation of the score of the film, the music that's been selected. Steve, let me start with some tacit praise. You couldn't, if you asked me to guess the seven songs that were most likely to be in this movie, I would have gotten pretty damn close off the top of my head. (laughs) I think the average person who had never seen the film could easily get three out of these seven. Are you accusing I mean, the more- soundtrack of being a little too obvious? <laughs> <laughs> yes, pointedly. Uh, I think it is, uh, and I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say it, the weakest part of the film by far. I mean, the music cues are just like objectively on the nose in like the most obvious pandering, yet in my opinion, enduring 90s way possible. I, I agree that it's like, it's not inventive at all. They don't set the tone at all. They're just like, this This song literally has like a lyric or two that is appropriate for what's happening on screen. And yet, like, I've, I find that, like, so what you were saying before about this, how this movie could be released today, this was the part, what I was thinking about, like, I wanted to save it for this segment, but this was the thing that stuck out to me as to be the most dated, like the way that music is used. And it's just like, just like slamming you over the head with, the song choice for the moment and just like dude to use ain't no mountain high enough in a rom-com like if you just like go on the wikipedia page for that song you could see how many times that movie's used in a rom-com like it's it's like the most obvious choice ever i i don't know if you want to go you know line by line here but the the first scene all by myself celine dion which i actually i think zellweger does a good job like she's pretty funny in that scene you know, Dude, she did, yeah. she's doing the air drumming. I actually pulled Sarah over to get her <laughs> assessment of her air drumming. We approved. <laughs> oh, your wife is an infamous air drummer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I don't like that. That's an example of it's like, okay, this isn't like, I, I'm not like rolling my eyes at this. I kind of am by the song choice or by like the, you know, how this, the title of the song applies to the moment, you know, the, the feeling she's supposed to be having in that moment. But yet, it doesn't ruin the scene. You know, I still think Zellweger pulls it out of the fire. But I don't know. Like, where do you want to go with this? I mean, do you want to? No, I think that's a good place to start. All by myself, I have is one one of two exceptions to the rule. Um, I like how there was like a nice clean break for her after the first like four bars of the song to stop, and then they have her sing for like another twenty five seconds. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's actually pretty good. I I liked that. She really goes for it too, and and to go for it to drunkenly sing in your non-native accent, uh, I that's just tough. That's tough for your tongue to do. So hats off. Uh, but it it goes downhill pretty rapidly from there. 
can't take my eyes off of you when she sees Daniel Cleaver for mm. the first time. Yuck. <laughs> I, I could take my eyes off the screen. I wish I could take my ears off my head, frankly, Steve. Uh, Terrible. We have R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect, of course. Flagrant, egregious, did not like it. Uh, they they do a lot of this where they take like sort of soulful Motown songs and they put it over Bridget Jones hustling through London or spilling coddled cream on her trousers or whatever it is she's doing and i'm i it just is such a it's it's leaves a sour taste in my mouth yeah it's just totally like uninventive like the me and mrs jones oh aha yes the the dramatic song that plays at that i forget what moment that is but um yeah i think the i think the it's raining men weather girls that was probably the worst for me i think it's just because it that's what took that fight scene like for way way further over the line than it should have gone uh the inclusion of that song and then yeah ain't no mountain high enough to wrap things up it's just like holy shit like could this be dude and well ain't no mountain high enough plays on three occasions Mm -hmm. through throughout the ending the the trailing action of the film and i it was it was misused the first time the second time and the third time just um i can't endorse it at all but none of these hold a candle to i think even it's raining men almost becomes surrealist in its in its <laughs> bad placement in the in the moment uh but the one that just hit me like the stalest just dry taste in my mouth was the i'm every woman montage i've mentioned it already but oh right yeah that that could have been removed 100 percent, and it would be an abject improvement for the film so what is it about that like i, I mean i think it's it's so well, trite. It's too to cliche. Say, yes, yeah, exactly. it's to say that oh, Bridget Jones is like the here's here's a sidebar. Here's a, a word or phrase I keep hearing that I'm getting annoyed with. But the ur text, are you familiar with this? <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I don't think it's become very mainstream, but you do listen to a lot of uh, of media based media. So. I, yeah, it, it comes up frequently enough for me to be a little bit frustrated. I just think it sounds so dumb. But so the urtext for anyone who is not familiar with this phrase, it means kind of like the original. So one could say that, in fact, I think if you look on the Wikipedia page, like Bridget Jones' diary is considered the urtext of chick lit or whatever. But the idea that Bridget Jones represents the every woman. It's not not true, but it's just like such a played, trite thing to say. And to, to actually have that song, I'm Every Woman, play during that montage was like a, a pretty big groaner. Yep. The, the groan test was failed. I, I audibly groaned in my home. Um, so a couple of, of glimmers in, in the rough, but by and large, they could have been served to pick songs that were a little more interesting I wouldn't have mind. I I didn't really mind it being dated, uh, but it was dated in a way that was like this isn't the way we do things anymore. It, oh yeah, is, I mean we we don't really go for like the most cliched selections. See, often. I think the song choices themselves, those songs individually aren't dated. Like they still sound great. They're class. They're they're essentially classics at this point. Yeah, yeah, but, of course. Um, but yeah, the way that they use them to like just like bludgeon the viewer over the head with what's happening in the moment is dated now are you ready for the main event these are all appetizers hell yeah in in front of the all you can eat turkey curry (laughs) uh it's america's favorite segment to say and to spell (laughs) two guys a girl and a turkey curry buffet steve in this segment 
we examine the the franchises, the even more than a series, a pair of series, two leading men, whom our leading lady is forced to choose between throughout each chapter, and we see which one we would prefer, or which one we think we make a case for both of them. Basically, is how we is how we do it. This one will be interesting. I think it'll be interesting. Do you want to pick a side? Do you want to? How do you, how do you want to do this, Steve? So I was thinking about that before we started. I think we should just chop it up because I think there's only one side. But I think I, I just kind of want to talk about it more generally. Like we in the during in the book, the conversation we had about the book, we kind of tried to, yeah, like like posit like a take uh, each of us for each guy. I think that that conversation would be very similar in the movie because not a whole lot changes um, in terms of like the the character. The character of these characters doesn't change very much. Um, so I, I think we should just kind of have just like a more general conversation about how we felt about these performances and the relationships between these three characters. Great idea. I'm, I'm totally on board. Okay. Um, so differences between the book and the movie, they do a fair amount of work to tie the three together more in the movie than in the book. Like, so we kind of had a conversation about whether or not this is a love triangle in the book. What's your take for the movie? I would say definitely. I think, um, it's not quite as, um, clear cut as, you know, some of the like YA adaptation media that you might be familiar with. I mean, the story is still about Bridget Jones, but I think, I I don't think there's a real way around the fact that this is a a who will she choose adventure. I think you're totally right. Like the fact that they have a fight in the street over her essentially or or it's I kind of a argue tell, about yeah. <laughs> whether or not it's over her, but they are fighting over her essentially. Um and so yeah, I think for that reason alone you could say that this is pretty clearly a love triangle. Um so the Darcy Cleaver relationship, the stakes are heightened. They add this wrinkle that Cleaver actually slept with Darcy's wife and was caused their breakup and then lies to Bridget about it, saying that, in fact, that Darcy was the one who slept with Cleaver's wife, which, of course, didn't happen. He never had a wife to begin with. Sleazeball. Right. Do we... My question, just to start this off, do we believe these guys would ever have been best friends? (laughs) 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 No, no, no. No, it doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense at all. But I mean, I guess that's, that's neither here nor there. I don't think that really makes a difference, but I just was like, okay, like, so I get that. Like, okay, he slept with his wife and that's why he hates him. That makes, that part makes sense. But yeah, it's pretty hateable. He was the best man in his wedding. Like, I don't really see these two dudes hanging out, but it follows uh, the uh, thing the movie does. It's like the movie makes, takes a stance, then dials it up to 10. You're like, Ooh, that's up to 10. And then they like dial it up to 13 and you're like, Why'd you do, why'd you go the extra? Now it's too loud. Right. But that's whatever. That's, that's off on its own. Um, they really go like pretty far out of their way to insert Darcy and all those party dinner scenes. Which Darcy's makes, showing up left and right. Which makes he sense. He doesn't I even mean, enters the, he doesn't even enter the story in the book until halfway through. Right. I mean, we get him right at the beginning. It's foreshadowing, of course. Uh, but then we, he doesn't show up for a long time. In the in the movie, like you pointed out, Steve, he's coming and going. He's falling in and out of scenes all the time. I think another, we, I mean, we didn't really bring this up in the movie versus book conversation, but one thing that is just like very, very noticeable, Daniel is so much more suave in the movie. And Grant is just kind of like unbearably charming. 
he's just like totally sweeps Bridget off her feet. In the book, he's more manipulative and like lazy. Yeah, I don't know. There's just there's some scenes like for like I don't know like the growl of the engine like that's pretty damn charming. But when she goes when they're at dinner that first dinner and she's trying to think of something smart to say and ask him about Chechnya and he just quickly says I couldn't give a fuck, Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, he has some great almost like threatens to break his character style lines that I I mean. That gives the illusion of doing it, but he's so like natural and off the cuff that it's pure allure. I'm reminded when they're when they're first um, becoming romantically in flagrante, as uh, Renelle Zegreger says in the in the movie, and he's like taking off her clothes, and he says, "This is a, these are silly little boots. This is a silly little dress, and fuck me, totally enormous panties." <laughs> <laughs> I he and he like gets so deadpan when he says it. It's, I um, I love the part back at the dinner where she's asking or he asks her how you know how she knows Darcy and she's like oh I you know I've known him since I was four I used to like run around naked in his backyard or whatever <laughs> and he go, she goes how do you know him and he does that face and he goes same <laughs> like, <laughs> so that line reading is just Hall of Fame shit. Um, it is. I, Every, I mean, everything he touches in the film turns to solid gold. Dude, he's, where she's like, what happens at the office? And then he's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. And he like slowly, like, very clearly <laughs> explains what book publishing is to her. Like, and there are moments, there are some moments where Zellweger's reaction shots, she are, just seem very earnest. Like she's almost like, like he's caught her off guard and she's like legitimately cracks up. Which, I don't know, it's like in stark contrast, um, in my opinion, like the Firth Zellweger chemistry like doesn't seem exactly flammable to me, which kind of makes it tough that she's the one that he ends up with. Yeah, but, yeah. I don't know. What are you going to do? He seems like a good guy. I think that's going to be, that's my, my creative thesis here that I'm working around. A, a, little, a few more words of praise to heap on Hugh Grant as if we need it. He has some like pretty good. The movie doesn't play serious very well at all. Um, famously, the apartment scene where we're revealed that uh, Hugh Grant is cheating on Bridget with his fiance in the book, amazing. So much tension. Mm. Uh, in the film, okay, they kind of they kind of do capture the same feeling, but then they hit us with the slow mo and like the playback. When like she opens the door and sees the naked woman staring back at them, and it's like that didn't feel very good. So that's an example of the movie not being, in my opinion, very strong in serious moments. But Cleaver has a couple of moments where he's like trying desperately and pathetically to implore Bridget Jones to stay at the publishing company when she's leaving, and it doesn't really work out for him. But it's pretty convincing pretty convincing moment for him and then at the very end where we're treated to this like very like um complicated and uniquely nuanced version of his farewell or his like appeal to get her back and i i've got it written down here because it kind of stuck with me come on bridget we belong together you me your little skirt if i can't make it with you then i can't make it with anyone and um you know, Bridget Jones obviously says, you know, that's not that's not a good enough offer for me. She kind of realizes 
that underneath it all, the man's a narcissist. He, his his um, get back together with me speech, his last hurrah, was about himself. Right. And I think it's not as strong as Hugh Grant's humor, but it was convincing to me. I, I thought that was a really cool way to close out his character in the film. I totally agree. That stuck out to me as well. But yeah, Grant, high marks for just being goddamn charming. Uh, and Firth, Give me seconds. Give me thirds. <laughs> Firth, you know, as charmless as Darcy in the novel, does Firth ever really get a moment in the sun in this movie? No, I would say he, he spends uh, a good number of moments in the shade, though. Uh, <laughs> Let me let me posit this. Well, Grant thing. is the son himself at times, so it's hard <laughs> to get a moment. <laughs> now our praise for him has begun to jump the shark. That's what I was hoping for. Let me ask you something, Steve. Firth's portrayal of Darcy is different than Darcy's character. Do you find it to be effective? Or do you find it to be too wooden and sort of bloodless even given the fact that he was playing a wooden, bloodless character, that's a good. That's a really good question. Yeah, you got to like take into consideration, like, yeah, what's on the page there, and like what what that character is actually supposed to be. I think that the the first like probably half of the movie when he's supposed to be off putting, he is genuinely off putting, and I don't really like those scenes with him in it. It's just like like kind of how like dismissive and rude he is to her at the in the first the turkey curry scene. And then, like mid midway, he like this, you know, the the moment when he tells her that I like you for you, that doesn't seem authentic to me because he, there hasn't been any indication that for a reason why he should feel that way. Um, so that part like kind of falls flat for me. I do like the scene where he goes to her house for you know and like starts cooking with her on her birthday, and he's like they start to warm up to each other. Like that feels, that feels about right um, chemistry wise for those two characters. Yeah. From, Obviously, he's never going to be as charming or as charismatic as Grant, um, but he's also not, you know, like a cheating asshole either. So you get so that's that, kind but... of what I'm driving at, though. Like, I'm I want to be careful not to outthink myself because you know, part of me wants to say like, "Ooh, that's actually much more like how a real courtship goes." You you get to know each other slowly over time. There isn't a lot of charisma and chemistry up front. You you mm. sort of put that together. But am I giving too much credit to the narrative? Like I think personally that we would have been better served to have Darcy be his own version of charming, to have some sort of compelling element to him, uh, to set it up as a meaningful choice. And and yeah, like in terms of like postage stamp taglines that you could put on the dvd jacket i like you just the way you are is is pretty strong good line but like you said it was a little bit toothless given the fact that they didn't really have any clear affinity for one another until that moment so Mm -hmm. it it just didn't it didn't play out and it made it was it was to the point where even knowing that firth was the good guy darcy is who we should be rooting for her to be with at the very end, I was still almost like, could pick Cleve though. <laughs> Cleve's could not still on. pick him though. <laughs> he is still right here. What I will say to add to your point, so there there is a way to be appealing 
even if you're not the most charming, charismatic person, because you could still be wry and witty, you know, especially yes. if you're British. Like that's like if he had been a little bit more of that, I think I, that would have like landed better for me. The fact that they end up together. Um, totally. So may, maybe that's a failing of Firth. Maybe that's a failing of the writing to actually like, yeah, make that character a little less stiff. Hard to say. I don't want to like place the blame anywhere. I, I like Firth overall, uh, but it's just hard. It's hard when you're going up against Grant in his prime. One thing we have not talked about yet, which I can't let go unremarked on, is this dude reads, <laughs> this MF reads her diary, like gets upset, ostensibly gets upset and leaves, and then she chases after him. Like that's kind of a pretty big invasion of privacy, even if it is like laying open on the, on the kitchen table. Yeah, it's kind of a mess. I think um, I think the endings... That's another, it's got Lord of the Rings, Return of the King thing going mm. on where there's like six endings to this movie. He, he does invade, he does a very undarcy like thing. Now we're immediately played off to like, well, not immediately, but a few minutes later, we're, we're to learn that he popped out to buy her a new diary. That's why he left. Right. Kind of a groaner. Extreme groan status. And she like chases after him for like several blocks in her underwear in the snow. Um, more more, more <laughs> Zellweger ass. Which you took I the guess words right out of my mouth. <laughs> if you're gonna keep offering it to me, I'm gonna keep taking it. But uh, that's not really what the film's about. Or maybe it is. Maybe that's what we're discovering. Uh, but yeah, I think. And then he like comes back. He's he goes to America. Actually leaves. Flies back to kiss her goodbye. They. Tom and Jude and Shaz are in the tiny car heckling her. This occurs. There are several <laughs> final moments. I I found it all to be a bit of a mess, and I, I almost wished in the end that that scene with Cleve was like left open ended. And that's how and we just like it would be a little too like gritty in the teeth for a rom com, but it would have set up the sequels pretty well. I was going to say, there, there is a sequel to this movie, you know. Like, the story's not over. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, the way that this movie ends, you would believe that it is. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I kind of forgot. You know, we hadn't really talked on the endings yet either. The, yeah, like the, the weird, like, false starts and, like, pitfalls that are averted. The scene where he leaves. Or what? how does it go down? Like, he, she, she bears her soul to him. Then she finds out that he and Natasha are going to get engaged and that he's leaving for New York. And then he ends up coming back for her. But then he ends up leaving again because he read the diary. And that's then comes right. Back. Yeah, like that. that is, it is like two. And it's a little rushed. You know, there's that, that all that probably happens in a, like a total of like 10 minutes of screen time. So yeah, one, one too many non-existent pitfalls. I wasn't totally left like satisfied with the ending, but I wasn't, I, I, when you're looking at the book, I, th- I actually think the ending is better here than in the book. Cause the book, you get that ridiculousness with Julio. Yeah. Which I well, think is one of the weakest parts of the book. And Darcy is like, disappears for, you know, a good chunk of the last part because he's like saving her mother, you know, and from Portuguese prison. I want to read that book, by the way, like capers of a, <laughs> of a barrister, in southern Lisbon, just like pacing the streets, staying up late, smoking cigarettes, drinking wine, like pouring over legal records, that does tracking down dope. Julio. 
Yeah, I'd be in for that. But yeah, I guess I guess the fact that like that the book the ending of the book is not particularly strong, that the ending of the movie is actually better but still not that strong in my opinion. You know, it's it's hard totally. to like get upset about it. Yeah. Just a lot of climaxes. None of them none of them particularly f- fulfilling. Most of them are like that egg sheller scene, just a weak <laughs> little drizzle. <laughs> I don't want to uh, get out of here before we give a little more shine to Zellweger because I really I think we should talk just a little bit more on her performance. Yeah, overall, totally. pretty funny, heartwarmingly pathetic, but never off-putting, which like the, is the kind of like the the on the marquee for the Bridget Jones character. But she she really nails it. Zellweger it's a rather nails. tall order, I think. Actually, the the lovable loser that's a classic trope. It's present very frequently. Um, more so for male leads than than women, but I think it's a close line you have to toe. You have to be more lovable than loser. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she does it, and she does it in a way that, frankly, feels pretty fresh to me. Yeah, totally. I mean, she's it, she. It shouldn't also like go unmentioned that she's in every scene. Uh, the accent is mm-hmm. consistent throughout, and yeah, like the movie holds up, and like it holds up compared to a book that I liked quite a bit. Succinctly spoken, Steve, and I think. Um, I think it deserves its place in the, in the pantheon of rom-coms. One of those rom-coms, uh, you know, sort of like like a horror movie that's a good movie first and a good horror movie second. I would say like Bridget Jones' Diary, perhaps a little more prototypical, but a good movie that is also a very good romantic comedy. Absolutely. Steve, uh, this was a pleasure. I think much like the movie, we, we got through it with with a good bit of pace. We had, we had the, the yeah. Bridget Jones diary energy. We filled this, us like the Holy ghost. <laughs> this could have like extended into two plus hours, but yeah, we got, out, we got in and out of here just in a, just about the same time as the movie. So good for us. <laughs> scene for scene. Uh, Steve, like you, you foreshadowed though. We had, we had kind things to say, fond memories about Bridget Jones diary, but Something looms on the horizon. <laughs> a dark cloud rises. Oh, man. Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason, the sequel. What are you looking forward to? Or if you're like me, what are you dreading about next episode? I'm actually like dying to know, has time softened me on Edge of Reason? Or is it actually <laughs> a crime against humanity the way it exists in my memory? <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, I don't no. know. What about you? I'm anxious to discover how we can even talk about the jokes without getting secondhand canceled mm. by it. Just the disclaimers are going to be. Yeah. We're going to have to publish a warning. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's going to be something else. Uh, but I think, you know, our, our series is still in it, in its relevant infancy. We've only this is only our second installation, uh, but I don't know if there's ever been an episode of the OC, certainly not an installment of Bridget Jones' Diary so far, that deserves the broad cannon fire that we're about to provide it, and that <laughs> has me excited. That, I'm I'm chomping at the bit to take off the gloves and just go hog ass wild. Hell yeah! <laughs> All right, listeners. Well. This has been a pleasure, Steve. Um, very excited to, to do it again sometime very soon. Until we talk about Chapter 2, I'd like to invite our listeners to take it till they make it. Mm-hmm.